0: Good morning, everybody. So as a church, we always want to be in a place where, you know, we're learning from teaching and we're also just aware of prophecy. And I wanted to mention a word, um, a prophetic word. It was a dream that Brooke had in December. And some of you, we've shared this before, but I want to mention it again. And it says, in December, I had a dream that Lou Engel, and he was, we used to work with him. He had a ministry called The Call, fill stadiums for 12 hours of prayer and fasting, and um, wonderful man. I had a dream that Lou Engel was prophesying over me. He said to take note that February would be very significant for us, and that things would really get going in June. And... And then it said later, um, and in the dream, I said, wow, that's exactly what your son prophesied over me, too. And I felt like it was a confirmation within a dream, and the Lord saying that it was settled and confirmed. And then I was waking up, I felt like the Lord said to watch for Lou's cash, which is, you know, C A S H or C A C H E. I felt like it was a play on words because it would be significant. And she had the dream in December. And nobody, none of us foresaw, nobody foresaw in February, the Asbury outpouring. It was real. And now all those students are going from their college campuses, because it it really popped into, like popcorn into different college campuses around the country, and they're going home this summer. I texted Lou the dream in February, and he texted me a lot back, but one thing he said is, I think February is heavy with the sound of rain, and maybe June the deluge Put your head between your knees. And what's interesting is what Lou is referring to is 1 Kings 18, when Elijah prayed to break the drought, and he heard the sound of a heavy rain. And he prayed seven times, saw nothing, and then the flood came. Which, you know, who knows the way, if this is the Lord or not, but what we teach each week, I I have this prepared way beforehand, the schedule. And this is in no way coordinated with this. In fact, I forgot that Lou said this until I read it this morning. But next week, the first week in June, Brooke is preaching on that passage of Elijah with his head between his knees praying for rain. Totally uncoordinated, it really was, I'm not lying. I don't know what this means. But it wasn't just a dream, it was a dream where the Lord settled it and confirmed it. And February absolutely was extraordinary. I don't know what God's gonna do in June. But all, what I do know is that if the Lord is going to move powerfully If he's going to pour out his spirit, if he is going to do a unique and extraordinary work, then probably the single most important thing that can happen with us is that we be in unity. In fact, let me, we'll do Oprah for a moment. Why is unity so important? Why? Somebody tell me. I'm going to give you the microphone. Tell me why unity is that important. Because when there's unity, God commands a blessing. Yeah, Psalm. So is it 133? I could be wrong. I think it's Psalm 133, where the Lord says, "I literally, I, I look for people to be where they're loving each other and in unity, and an extra grace, extra blessing there." Why else? Why is unity that important to God? Jackie? I think it's important because it's all the same message, all the same focus, all the same perspective. God loves us all as individuals, and he also loves us when we act as one person. Focus is important. Have you ever, if you you ever had a construction crew and everybody had their own agenda, how is that house going to look? There's a very practical thing. We all have to be in unity to to do the same thing, heading in the same direction. How do we maintain unity? How? Well, one way is by talking to each other. I would say another would be by keeping short accounts, not letting
1: resent and unforgiveness, kind of overlooking offenses. Jesus said, well, no, we are Christians by our love, right? So... It's
0: easier to be in unity when you're maintaining a loving relationship. 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no no record of what? If you have a list in your mind of everything that person has done against you, guess what you're going to have to do with that list? You're going to have to burn it up. It's not denying what they've done. It's not denying the hurt they've caused. It's not even denying the fact that you might need to get some counseling and talk it through but what I was talking about is offense and resentment. Why? How else do we maintain unity? How else do we maintain unity, Jerry?
1: Meeting, meeting together like this and in small groups, it pro- provides unity for
0: the brethren. Yeah, in the book of Hebrews, do not forsake gathering together. It's hard to be unified if you just literally don't talk and don't see each other. Unity. And so that's what we're going to look at today as in First Kings 19. So let me go ahead and switch microphones. Turn, if you have your Bibles, turn to First Kings chapter 18. And we'll go ahead and read it together. First Kings 18 verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And we've talked about their worship of Baal and Asherah in you know, previous weeks. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I even I only am left of the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bowls be given to us and let them choose one bowl for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. Yahweh is the name. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he's relieving himself. And that is graphic in the Hebrew. Maybe your God's taking a dump. Or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. So Elijah gathers the people together, and in the literal Hebrew, it says this. The literal Hebrew, how long will you go limping or hobbling between two crutches? If he is the Lord, if the Lord is God, if Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And so the issue is not Yahweh or the Lord versus Baal. The issue is is what I call exclusivism versus inclusivism. You might say, well, Sam, what do you mean by that? In the ancient Near East, in all of these different religions, they believed, like Baalism, in many gods. They believed that each god had its own sphere of influence, a particular god for a particular situation could be prayed to. And in the Baal religion, they would have no problem um, They wouldn't need to choose between Baal and Yahweh. They would worship both. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, um, archaeologists discovered inscriptions in Israel where it said, I bless you in the name of Yahweh and his Asherah. Yahweh had a consort. Does that make sense? They had no problem believing that. Now, God requires exclusivism, not inclusivism. God says, you worship me alone as the only God. You cannot worship me and others. In the Ten Commandments, the first commandment is absolute exclusivity. Exodus 20... chapter 20, verse two to three, I am the Lord your God, Yahweh, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So what, what Elijah does is this inclusivism, well, God and every, all the other gods, he confronts it. And when he confronts it, he says this, how long, literal Hebrew, will you go limping between two crutches? The same Hebrew word for limping was used for a man named Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel who was lame. And it said, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled And as she fled in her face, he fell and became lame. That's the identical Hebrew verb as limping. And his name was Mephibosheth. So following Baal and Yahweh, Elijah says, you're like, the idea is crutches that are two different lengths. One crutch is six feet and one crutch is four feet. And what's going to happen if you have crutches two different lengths? You're going to be hobbling. You're not going to be able to get anywhere. And spiritually, that's Israel was like a lame person that could hardly move. The identical Hebrew verb is used later for how they hobbled around the altar they erected to Baal. The identical Hebrew verb. And they took the bowl that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Remember Jesus, John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. What? What? through me. People say, well, I don't like that. That means Hinduism isn't going to work. Buddhism isn't going to work. Islam isn't going to work. Atheism isn't going to work. Jesus, you're so exclusive. If it's true, your opinion doesn't matter. Right? If it's true, our opinions don't matter. What we like or don't like doesn't matter if it's true. But not only is this about a confrontation between inclusivism inclusivism, and exclusivism, I'll explain this in a second, it's between non-existence and existence. Twice the author says when they prayed to Baal the author says here's the response twice. And it says verse 26 but there was no voice and no one answered. Verse 29 but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Now say no one. That's the highlight. The bio, it doesn't say That Baal doesn't answer as if Baal exists and was ignoring them. The text doesn't say that. That somehow Baal is silent. The text says it uses language that means there's nobody there. The language of absence, not presence. Baal is a non entity, but the God Baal doesn't exist. There is no God riding on the clouds, bringing fertility to the land, bringing the rain. It doesn't exist. It says there was no voice. The actual Hebrew is not there was no answer. The Hebrew is there was no answerer. There's no voice because there's no one to answer. There's nobody there when he's prayed to. When it says no one paid attention, it implies nobody is there to notice Baal's, the prophets of Baal. Baal is not just a lesser God. He's not just a hostile God. He doesn't exist. There's one God. His name is Yahweh. The entire, no, you say, Sam, what's the, I mean, it's kind of a simple point. Why are you making a big deal about this? The entire religion of Baalism was affecting every single part of Israeli society. It had these myths that weren't real. All these religious myths about Baal and Asherah and other gods and things they supposedly created And acts they supposedly did, and histories they supposedly had, it wasn't real. What was affecting society on every level was a lie. A lie is saying something that is true that is not. This wasn't just this confrontation between Yahweh and Baal. It was a confrontation between what is true and real and what is not. And Paul said it's the same today. Romans one twenty four because they exchanged the truth about God for a what? You have to understand how much of what the world hears is Entire belief systems and ideologies that literally don't exist. It didn't happen at all. So they sacrifice, they cry out, they jump around, they cut themselves, nothing. Nothing. And then Elijah says, it's my turn. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. So 12 stones that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. That was the altar. And with the stones, he made an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two says of seed. And he put the wood in the order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. He's like, If you think I'm going to manipulate a miracle and put a spark underneath, let's just make douse it with so much water that there's going to be no doubt. Right? And he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time, and he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time. There's no way there's a secret spark somewhere under the wood. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with the water. And you have to think in the middle of a three and a half, at the end of a three and a half year drought, you're like, that's a waste of resources, Elijah. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, Yahweh, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the Brook Kishon and slaughtered them, there capital punishment for their crime. So Elijah responds by praying to the Lord. When James, the Lord's brother, highlights Elijah, guess what James highlights? Elijah's what? Prayer life. James 5, 16 and 19. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. It's effective. Elijah was with a man with a nature like ours. James is saying Don't read a guy like Elijah and think of like in an Avengers movie. He was a guy just like us. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. You have to pray according to the will of God. If God says pray for a drought, you pray for a drought. If God says pray for rain, you pray for rain. The goal is to pray according to his will, not according to what you want. Jerry. Is there any connection between the years there and the mid tribulation period now? You would be shocked how much Elijah language in First Kings eighteen languages in the book of Revelation. It fills it. It's like replaying what happened on Carmel on a worldwide scale. So, but that's a whole other thing. You can't, that's like, don't do that to me. In order to turn the nation back to God, what does Elijah pray for? He prays for two things. He says, God, reveal yourself. Answer me, O Lord! Answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And then he says, "God initiate repentance, and that you have turned their hearts back." Revelation and repentance. God answers that prayer with a miraculous sign and wonder. He causes fire or lightning. Or remember, there's no, the word for fire. Could be lightning. It could be fire, it could be lightning and fire, or something like lightning and fire. It falls from the sky. And the timing is miraculous. It falls immediately after Elijah prays, not a natural event. The placement is miraculous. It doesn't fall anywhere. It falls exactly where the altar is that Elijah had just built and soaked with water. And when you look at the story that we just read, almost the entire story is about the specifics, the details of building this altar. Why? What? The message of the altar is probably the most important message in this passage. Why? Now, what fell was not just physical flames. When you read the phrase, the fire, what? Of the Lord consumed, that phrase is used all over the Old Testament for God's manifest presence, His manifest power. Now, Exodus 24, 17. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire. Remember, the fire of the Lord consumed on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 9, 3, know therefore today that he goes before you as what? A consuming fire is the Lord your God. Psalm 53, our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is what? A consuming fire. So when you read the fire of the Lord consumed, it's not just physical fire. Flames or electricity. It's a manifestation of the presence and power of God. But the question is, when and where did it fall? It, it didn't just fall on some random spot anywhere in Israel or in the Middle East. When that fire fell, it was specifically upon that altar. Now, in the scriptures, altars represent prayer and worship. We know that. But there's something more. What does it represent? Let's look at it. 1 Kings 18.30. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been broken down. Elijah doesn't make a new altar, by the way. He says, the one that my spiritual forefathers built, I'm going to rebuild it. He's building it off of what happened with prior generations, right? Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob so twelve to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel should be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. So he builds it with 12 stones. 12 stones represent the 12 tribes. But what was happening at this point? There was a division within Israel. Remember? After Solomon. Remember? Rehoboam gets in a war with Jeroboam and there's a split between the southern and northern kingdoms and Israel's in massive division. But yet when Elijah builds the altar, he says, I got 12 stones and he said, to whom the word of Jacob had 12 sons and the word of the Lord had come, I'm gonna call your name Israel. It's shouting that even though there was division, God was still like, I see one people. You hear me? I see one people. By using 12 stones, Elijah was showing that God's desire was never for this division within the people of God. He wanted unity. This message of unity wasn't just communicated once. It was communicated twice, emphasizing it. How do we know that? After Elijah builds the altar with 12 stones, he pours water on it how many times? 12. Four jars, four jars, four jars of water poured out on the altar three times. That's three times four is? 12. Uh, Elijah's shouting. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering in the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and also filled the trench with water. Do you understand what's going on here? Elijah said, Lord, turn their hearts back to you again. We need mass repentance, Right? They've been following Baal, lies, and it infiltrated every part of their culture. For Israel to turn back to God, they also needed to turn back to one another. Because Israel didn't just commit idolatry and separate from God, they showed hostility to their brothers and separated from one another. Loving God and loving one another, everybody say go together. How do you show your love for God? How? How do you show your love for God? By loving one another. Hello? How do you show your love for God? By loving one another. I'm not the one that said it. Blame it on the Apostle John. Jesus is one of his best friends. 1 John 4, 20-21 If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. If anyone says, I love God and hates his spouse, he is a liar. If anyone says, I love God and hates his children, he is a liar. If anyone says, I love God and hates um, the person sitting across the sanctuary, he is a liar. For he Who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must, everybody say must, must also love his brother. Listen to me. Where did the fire fall? On this altar that symbolized unity of God's people. An altar of 12 stones set together with 12 jars of water poured on it. The altar represented God's people together, not divided. Divided. Did you know, I I could do slides and slides of verses. I think you mentioned Psalm 133. That's one of countless ones where unity is the path to glory. You might say, well, why? It's that important to God that we love each other. It's that important to Him. Give you one verse, Romans 15, 5, and 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. May the God of endurance and encouragement, you're going to need endurance and encouragement to be in harmony together, right? To live in harmony with one another, in unity, in accord with Jesus Christ. Paul ties being in harmony with each other And being aligned or accorded with Jesus Christ. Notice that. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as I mean, there's going to be worship times in the in the weeks to come where, as one voice, we're going to raise our voices loud. And it's not just the volume of our voice. It's with our one voice we're reflecting something. The unity of our hearts before God. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. You have to treat people the way Jesus treats people. Here it is. For the glory of God notice when Brooke and I before we were going to go we were married oh we weren't married yet I don't remember if we were married or not I was working at the shepherd shop bookstore which was the bookstore of the Anaheim Vineyard for Cindy and Laura Campbell great bosses at the time and i was there i was the cashier guy and i would organize the books the bookstore at the anaheim vineyard and i remember this one sunday morning this lady walks in and she hands me her day planner and she says can we had an imprinting machine that we did for bibles now we would only imprint our own books we wouldn't do imprinting on books that people brought in because we would screw up a lot on the imprinting machine and the liability of ruining somebody's other book? If it was our own book, we'd just replace it. If it was somebody's other book and we screwed up, we're like, ugh. So we made a rule that we would only imprint on our own books. Well, she hands me a day planner and she says, can you imprint, it was for one of her relatives' birthday, and print their name on it? And I looked at her and I said, ma'am, we would love to, but we can't. I said, because you bought it somewhere else. And I said, plus, the binding, the, the cover's too thick. It wouldn't fit under the clasps on the imprinting machine. And she looks at me and she goes, she goes, I'm asking you to do it. I'm, and, and I need it done. I'm headed towards a birthday party. Would you please just show some customer service and do it? And I said, ma'am, I can't. And, and she said, then who can? Well, I said, you could talk to our managers, but our managers don't work here on the weekends so they can come, come by this week. As loud as she could, she goes, boy, to let everybody know that I was young. She goes, could you be more in, you know, any more uncooperative? And she starts berating me. There's a line of, I mean, this store would get packed after church. A line of people, I'm sitting there in this she looked like she was in her 50s or so, just berating me. I'm just like, ugh. Oh. And finally, she grabs her day planner. She asks another employee. The employee says, We can't, ma'am. And she goes, Huh. You know what I mean? The lady just walked out of church. I'm sure she had her hands lifted worshiping Jesus not more than an hour before. Any of you I have we ever done that before? Everyone raise your hand. <laughs> As she walks out to the door, she literally turns around, points her finger at me, and this is what she says. I have been going to this church for decades. And I have been a part of this church for a long time. I have don't know who you are and why you're being so uncooperative with me and she starts letting everybody know that she's a long-term member of the church and I'm some young punk, young punk that wouldn't help her and she walks out and inside I'm just getting so mad, right? I'm just getting mad and I, I remember that day I told, I told Brooke about it. I told my dad about it. I co- told my coworkers about it. And I'm letting everybody know what a jerk she is. Right? That afternoon, and I'm not joking, I had a devotional time, and the book that I was reading was called Crucified by Christians by a man named Gene Edwards. It was literally called Crucified by Christians by a man named Gene Edwards who wrote a book called The Tale of Three Kings, which should be required reading for every Christian alive. God will put you under leaders that will throw spears. Your job is to not throw spears back. That's how God taught David under Saul. Hello? When I opened the book, and I I brought the quote here, all of a sudden, the Lord convicted me. The Lord exposed my heart because I was resenting this lady. And here's the quote I read. This is a literal quote from the book. How did you handle being crucified by other Christians? Was there anger, resentment, attack? What was your conduct? Did you find fault? Did you analyze another's actions, even scrutinizing their smallest deed and motive? In other words, did your dark side emerge? Your answer may shed light on the purpose of God in allowing you to pass through these waters. And all of a sudden, it was like the Lord exposed my heart, not just with this lady, but with a pattern in my life. When somebody would offend me, Maybe I would forgive them with my lips, but not at the heart level. And in conversations, I would bring it up about this pastor or this coworker or this ministry team member that did this and I, in conversations, and I would bring it up about how, what, what they did and how wrong it was and how right I was. Gossip. And that was a way I got to keep my resentment going. And the Lord said, Sam, you can't just forgive with your lips. You have to love them from your heart. Even your enemies, you got to love them. Even if what they're doing is wrong and hurtful and offensive, you love them because Jesus loves them. We were all of us have been wrong, hurtful, and offensive, and he died for us. Any of you never been offensive, wrong, and hurtful? I, got a, I actually put the book, the book down. I remember I went into another room. I literally got on my knees, and I just said, Lord, help me. I can't let being resentful a part of my life, a part of my habits, I've got to learn to truly forgive them for what they have done and love them for who they are. You know, it's interesting. I, I, don't, I do Facebook because I'm trying to figure out when lakes are going to unfreeze in the Sierras. All I do on Facebook is backpacking sites and stuff with the Sierras and fishing and all that. I don't know how it is, an ad popped up for a movie that's coming out by a guy named Darren Wilson and a, called The God Man, and it's just cool how many movies are coming out, like Jesus Revolution and all these movies, that are just faith-based movies. And I, so I clicked on it, and I looked at little clips from The God Man, and I saw a clip that I literally went into tears. And it was, and it was clips that didn't make it to the movie, but he wanted to put them on Facebook. And it was by Bill Johnson. Now, with Bethel, I have some extremely strong disagreements with some of the things they teach and some of the practices they have. Right? For me. But there's there's a huge danger right now happening in the church. Huge. I cannot believe how, how we easily throw around the word cult and heresy at this point. A cult is... N- if, if, a cult, if a gathering is a cult, they are not a church. They are not a member of the body of Christ. They are not part of the bride of Christ. What is a cult? They teach heresy. What is Heresy. Heresy is a denial of the core truths of Christianity. What are the, the Bible gives us the litmus test. Are they the church or not? Are they a part of the body of Christ or not? And the, and the letters to, of John, the teachings of Jesus, the letters of Paul. So that's an easy answer. Do they deny that Jesus is God in the flesh? Do they deny that he died for our sins and rose from the grave? Do they deny that the Bible is the word of God? Do you understand what I'm saying? If they don't, if they believe these things, they are the body of Christ. They are part of the church. If they deny those, the Bible says this is the test. What do you do with Jesus and the Word of God? Are there other things we might disagree over? Yes. There are other things which, there are arguments and disagreements and there's false teaching, but that's not the same as heresy. The church fathers were very particular. Heresy is a denial of the core truths. They are not brothers and sisters. They are not part of the body of Christ. Do you understand me? I mean, I saw a Facebook post, you know, the cult of Alan Scott. Now, there are things I disagree with teaching in practice with Alan. But, Have they denied the core truths of the faith? Do you understand what I'm saying? Strong, Did Paul, you should see some of those letters. You should see some of the stuff that he argued about. But he also said, I'm arguing with brothers. Other groups, he said, they're not brothers. They're actually false gospel. Cult. Do you understand what I'm saying? We have to be clear on this because I, I mean, on the internet now, my gosh, the word heresy and cult are being thrown around like it's no, when I was, when we were part of the vineyard on the radio, pastors would call us a cult. John Wimber say, teach heresy. When I was in IHOP with Mike Bickle, everybody was calling us a cult and saying we were teaching heresy. Because there were lots of things people disagreed over, right? But that's different than a... Disagreement over lots of things is different than a denial of the core truths of the faith. I said all of that because I want you to hear this Bill Johnson clip. It's probably the best response I have ever heard from any leader everywhere on how to maintain unity. Even though I have disagreements with Bill Johnson, do you understand what I'm saying? I do not believe that Bethel, in any way, shape, or form, is a cult. Bill has responded. We the core truths of the faith we all believe. They are a member of the body of Christ that people have to wrestle over. Is Jesus God in the flesh? Did He die for our sins? Did He rise from the grave? Do you understand what I'm saying? Is the Bible the word of God? So watch this quote, and we'll have to make, is it loud enough so everybody can? Just take a moment and really listen to what he is saying. I'm telling you, it's so important.
1: How, so how have you applied this? Because you're also...
0: Um you know, public enemy number one for a lot of people on the internet, right? Mm -hmm. Which I know you know about. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: How have you dealt with the constant slander, the constant attacks against you, against your church, against, you know, you're you're a heretic, you're this, you're that, you're a a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's always, like, you're probably Mm -hmm. get it more than anybody that I know. Mm -hmm. How have you dealt with that internally?
1: Well, two things. Jesus experienced that, and he was perfect. As imperfect as I am, how could I expect to not experience that? It's logical. And so, when you when you sign up to follow Jesus, you you sign up to experience the breakthroughs, the blessings, the increase, the presence, and the difficulties. And it's a part of it's a part of saying yes. What I do is I like to take communion often. And when I do, I pray specifically for five key people that are international people, who have, uh, excuse me, three of the five are international people um, that lead movements that are really targeted against me. Mm. And when I take communion, I pray for God to prosper their family, to prosper them, to give them the rich legacy of children and grandchildren that love and serve Him well. I, I pray for their health, you know, their finances, every area of their life. And if, if you just stay in that position of just constantly releasing blessing, not just tolerance, it doesn't help for me just to tolerate people, but to celebrate their their efforts to honor Jesus. they call me names because they believe, for example, there are many there's a rumor out there I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. No, I don't believe. I believe he is the Son of God, eternal Son of God, never stopped being. However, their zeal against me is for a good reason. They're mistaken, but they're just trying to defend the gospel. I can I can stop long enough to appreciate that. I, I wouldn't do it the same way, but I'm they're not my servant. It's foolish to judge another man's servant. So I, I just I leave it there and just pray a blessing.
0: I just want to finish for the, the just the last couple of minutes in that we would just just take a couple of minutes in just reflection. And what I want you to do is ask God, Lord, if am I am I harboring any offense, resentment, any 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 hatred any anger it's okay to disagree i mean i don't it's peter and paul and john my gosh they were no holds barred right you can disagree and still love you can have a boundary with somebody where you're like you're not safe you're you're abusive and hurtful so i'm going to put a boundary so that you're so that you stay away from me But you can still love somebody that you have a boundary with, right? And I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit, we need unity. I'm going to do things as a pastor that's going to offend some of you. And you're going to have to decide, am I going to hold resentment towards you or love you? And vice versa, right? There's no way to avoid unity. And guess what? On a a unified altar, I'm telling you, the fire is going to fall. The the dividers, the disunity group, they're going to criticize it when the fire falls and write articles and podcasts about it. We don't want to be that. So let's just take a moment, just in your seat, if you want to close your eyes, and just a moment, we're not going to take a long time. But I'm going to ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would visit each of us right now. You want us unified within our families, where we love each other, even at times if we can hardly stand each other. You want us unified in us as a church and the larger body of Christ. You want us unified. You want an altar of 12 stones, not a divided kingdom. And I'm asking God that you would expose our own hearts where we have not been loving, where we have held offense, where we have been resentful. And some of us feel stuck in that. We don't even know how to get out. So I'm asking that you would deliver us, that you would rescue us, that you would forgive us, and that you would help us. To love people, even people that we don't like. To love people, even people we don't like. Just invite right now, the, just invite the Lord. Just say, Lord, come touch my heart right now. If Jesus can say, Father, forgive them from the cross, with Jesus' help, we can do the same thing. We can forgive people that crucify us. Help us now, Holy Spirit. Just, I pray just your exposing, convicting, healing work on our hearts to rest. Just wait on the Lord right now. Come, Holy Spirit. The Lord is highlighting to you some relatives, even some faces, some names, some circumstances. And he's saying, now I'm going to give you an opportunity to love that person, to forgive that person, to not hold it against them. Even if they deserve it, to not hold it against them. Come Holy Spirit, we need your work in our hearts right now. in this room in your presence, Lord. so as we close tonight or this morning if you want prayer for this issue and, and, and just have a couple of people gather around and just pray for you and you know it's, you could be you don't have to share a lot or you can share more it's up to you how vulnerable and you know we're all family here should, hopefully this is a safe place for people to really do share without feeling condemned right but if you want prayer this morning for this issue Um, I think the easiest thing to do is if you want just a few people to gather around and pray just raise your hand real quick if you want it if not that's okay but if you want prayer for this issue just raise your hand and we can have a couple of people just gather around and pray for you. you need a cliff hey can a couple of people just gather around cliff and just pray for him right now anyone else if you just want prayer over this issue of your own heart and unity Anybody else? So, Lord, we just pray this morning that that this would be a week when you would work on our hearts, Lord. Especially preparing for what is coming. We invite you this week to have your way with us, Lord. And to not get away with things that maybe we've gotten away with in the past. You're so gentle with us, God. And I just pray you would bless, bless us this week, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.